0: Hello listeners, this is Mike, your host. If you are enjoying these archive episodes, please consider supporting the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. Hopefully, with your support, I can continue to release these archive episodes. Thanks. Hello and welcome. This is Michael and You're listening to episode 174 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, history of the N-1. The N-1 launch vehicle was intended to be the Soviet Union's counterpart to the Saturn V, the largest of a family of launch vehicles that were to replace the ICBM-derived launchers then in use. The N-series was to launch Soviet cosmonauts to the Moon, Mars, Venus, and place huge space stations into orbit. In comparison to the Saturn, the project was started late, starved of funds and priority, and dogged by political and technical struggles between the chief designers Korolev, Glushko, and Chalome. The end result was four launch failures and cancellation of the project five years after Apollo landed on the moon. Not only did a cosmonaut never land on the moon, but the Soviet Union even denied that the huge project ever existed. In December 1959, a meeting was called with all the chief designers who presented their latest designs to the military. Korolov presented the N-series, along with a much more modest series of upgrades to the R-7. Vladimir Chalomi, Korolov's rival, presented his Universal Rocket, the U-R series, which used a common lower stage in various cluster configurations to meet a wide variety of payload requirements. Mikhail Yangel, perhaps the most successful of the three chief designers, but with little political power, presented the small R-26, intended to replace the larger R-36 ICBM and the SK-100 space launcher. In the end, the military planners selected Chalomi's UR-100 as the new light ICBM and Yangles R-36 for the heavy role. They saw no need for any of the larger dedicated launchers, but they did give Korolov funding to develop the Molninia 8K78, which I'm sure you recall was an adaptation of the R-7. Of course, Chief Designer Korolov was not satisfied with this. In a letter to the Central Committee of the Communist Party dated January 1960, he proposed an aggressive program for the Communist Conquest of Space. He declared that the design bureaus of the Soviet Union must have a broad, swift assault on space research. That a new rocket of 1,000 to 2,000 metric tons gross liftoff mass with a 60 to 80 metric ton payload must be developed at the earliest possible date. That the advanced propulsion systems, nuclear, liquid oxygen, liquid hydrogen, low-thrust liquid, ion, and plasma engines need to be developed as quickly as possible, and that new automatic and radio guidance systems be developed to support these objectives. The heavy rocket would be developed in two phases. The N1, with a 40 to 50 metric ton payload, was to be developed as quickly as possible Perhaps as soon as 1960 to 1963. The N2, with a 60 to 80 metric ton payload using nuclear second and upper stages, was to be developed in 64 to 65. Korolev also requested that a decree be issued to establish a USSR Institute of Interplanetary Studies. This would be a public body like the Nuclear Institute in Dubna, and would coordinate worldwide work on space research and technology. The decree was also to authorize publication in the USSR of an open scientific technical journal covering international exploitation of space and interplanetary research. Korlov's letter was followed by a meeting with Khrushchev on March 3, 1960. Korolov believed it was possible, with the backing from the very top, to have a large rocket in the Soviet Union in a very short span of time. Unfortunately, at the meeting, Korolov said something he should not have, a slip of the tongue he would always regret. He admitted that his plan had not been agreed upon by all of the chief designers. This resulted in Khrushchev throwing the matter back for a consensus plan. By May 30, 1960, Korolov was back with a plan that now included participation of his rival chief designers, Shalomi and Yangel. Here are some of the highlights of the new plan. The N1 would be developed between the present and 1962 by Korolov's design bureau, OKB-1. It would be capable of launching 40 to 50 metric tons of payload to low Earth orbit and 10 to 20 metric tons to Mars. The N2 would be developed by OKB1 between 1963 and 67. It would be capable of launching a 60 to 80 metric ton payload to low Earth orbit and a 20 to 40 metric ton payload to Mars. A heavy interplanetary spacecraft designated TMK-1 would be developed by OKB-1 between 62 and 65. It would be capable of sending a crew of two or three on a flyby mission to Mars and Venus. Shalomi's design bureau would develop an unmanned cosmoplane for flight to Mars and Venus with return to Earth landing at conventional airfields. The Cosmoplanes would use new exotic chemical systems and low-thrust nuclear engines. These would be developed between 1965 and 1966. Shalomi's Design Bureau would also develop the UR-500, a 600-metric-ton gross liftoff mass rocket, using new chemical propellants for sending these spacecrafts to nearby planets. And to court the military, Korolov's plan called for the development of anti satellite weapons launched by an R seven and used to destroy enemy reconnaissance satellites. This time Korolov's plan was approved as outlined. Therefore, N1 design began as a result of the government decree on June 23, 1960. By September 1960, Korolov's engineers had already settled on the N1 configuration. It would be a monoblock scheme with a total liftoff mass of 2,000 metric tons and a payload of 70 to 75 metric tons. There would be sp- spherical tanks 10 to 11 meters in diameter. At this point, they were still investigating the use of 170 metric ton, 300 metric ton, and 600 metric ton thrust engines. The N1 was expected to have a payload of 3 to 4 percent of its takeoff mass, and the nuclear N2 would have a payload of 6 to 8 percent of its mass. 1961 brought more competition and confusion with the N1. Clearly, the chief designers throughout the Soviet Union had a serious problem working together for a common goal. In March 1961, during a meeting at Baikonur, designers discussed the N1 design, along with a new competing design by chief designer Glushko called the R-20 In June, Korolov was given a small amount of funding for N-1 development between the years 61 and 63. In May 1961, a government report set the first launch date of the N-1 rocket for 1965. Now, let's take a quick break from the political battles and cover a significant technical hurdle that needed to be cleared. In developing the upper stage engine for the R7, Korolov's team demonstrated that the higher performance could be achieved with a closed cycle engine. The advantage of a closed cycle engine is that all of the combustion cycle's gases and heat go through the combustion chamber. An alternative design called the gas generator cycle is an open cycle where the gas used to drive the turbo pumps is exhausted overboard without passing through the main combustion chamber. This reduces the efficiency. In a closed cycle, since no propellant is being dumped overboard, combustion allows for high-power turbo pumps which permit very high combustion chamber pressures, allowing the use of high expanse ratio nozzles at low altitude For better performance. Disadvantages of the closed system include harsh turbine conditions, exotic plumbing to carry the hot gases, and complicated feedback control. Chief designer Glushko refused to even consider closed cycle combustion for a liquid oxygen kerosene rocket. He believed it would only increase the already unmanageable chamber pressures and temperatures. Therefore, Korolev turned to Kuznetsov's design bureau. Kuznetsov's OKB had originally been founded to exploit German engineers and develop the gigantic turboprop engines of the Tu-95 Bear Bomber. But, with assistance from Korolev's team, he promised he could learn the technology. Kuznetsov had good relations with Korolev, and was conveniently located in Samara, the same town where the R7 production was underway, and in one production was planned. Kuznetsov was willing to attempt to produce the higher-efficiency closed-cycle engine that Glushko believed was impossible with the liquid oxygen kerosene propellants. Also in May of 1961, the U.S. announced its goal of landing a man on the moon before 1970. This prompted Korolev to propose his own plan, a lunar mission based on a new spacecraft, known as Soyuz, that was designed for Earth orbit rendezvous. Korolev called for several launches to build up a complete moon package, one for the Soyuz, another for the lunar lander, and additional launches with cislunar engines and fuel. This approach required a rapid launch rate to ensure that the modules in space could be built before running out of consumables while waiting in orbit. For the launch vehicle, Korolov proposed a smaller N1 with a 50-ton payload. Unfortunately for Korolov, proposing a plan did not ensure its political support. But, Korolov was determined. A year later, on May 16, 1962, the N1 draft project was completed. Now, the design had to be defended before the other chief designers at a meeting held over a two-week period in July of 1962. The three-stage N1 design of 1962 was meant to achieve the following objectives. 1. Place a heavy spacecraft in low Earth orbit for the purpose of research. 2. Circumnavigation of the Moon with a crew of two to three men. An entry into lunar orbit of robotic and crewed modules for study of the lunar surface. 3. Expeditions to the surface of the Moon. 4. Establish a lunar base and regular traffic between the Earth and the Moon. 5. Flyby of Mars and Venus and return to Earth by a crew of two to three men. 6. Entry into orbit around Mars and Venus and return to Earth of a spacecraft with two to three men. 7. Delivery of expeditions to the surface of Mars and Venus and identification of sites for research basis. 8. Launch of automatic probes to the outer planets, Jupiter and Saturn, etc. 9. Establishment of manned and unmanned spacecraft in high and geosynchronous Earth orbits for radio, television, communications, Earth resources, early warning, and meteorological purposes. 10. Deployment of heavy automatic and pilot military stations for high-priority operations on Earth, including the capability of making evasive maneuvers and deployment of large numbers of nuclear warheads or other military apparatus in low Earth orbit. And the last 11 simultaneous launch from a single base of a large number of nuclear warheads on intercontinental ballistic and global orbital trajectories with the assistance of multiple independently guided final rocket stages atop the last stage of the N1. To facilitate a 75 metric ton payload, the design called for a gross liftoff mass of 2,000 to 2,300 metric tons using only liquid oxygen and kerosene propellants in all stages. It would be necessary to build a 150 metric ton closed cycle rocket engine for use in the launch vehicle. Now at the time, the largest rocket engine chamber built in Russia was 40 metric tons and it was open cycle. There would be 24 11D-51 engines for the first stage. Eight... 11D-52 engines in the second stage, and four smaller 11D-53 engines in the third stage. Clearly, the design could have been simplified by using a smaller number of larger engines rather than so many small ones. OKB-1 studied the development of large engines in the 600 to 900 metric ton capacity, but these engines would have required development of new technologies which would not be available during the N1 project's timeline. The design called for the clustering of small engines to be managed by the CORD system, K-O-R-D. This was an elaborate automatic system that would monitor engine health, shut down any failing engines, and its opposite number, allowing continued operation of the cluster until the required stage performance was reached. At the meeting, Korolev had to justify his selection of liquid oxygen kerosene propellants and the monoblock configuration, which brings us to a major geographical advantage the U.S. had over the Soviet Union. In the United States, launched from coastal Cape Canaveral, permitted the 10-meter diameter Saturn I-C and the Saturn two stages to be shipped by barge from the factories to the launch site. No such possibility existed for Baikonur in the arid steppes of Kazakhstan. Alternative launch sites were considered, but Baikonur remained the only possibility due to the geography of the Soviet Union, there was no other launch location with relatively uninhabited downrange areas for impacts of the spent rocket stages. Despite intense criticism by Chief Designer Glushko, Keldish and the rest of the expert commission supported the N-1 draft project, but the program was still without an authorized mission. In August, Following the approval of the draft project, there was a more informal discussion between Khrushchev and the chief designers at the Soviet leader's estate at Pitsunda on the Black Sea. Korolov went over the head of the military once again and pitched his giant military space station as a rationale for the project. At the conclusion of the meeting, Khrushchev ordered the start of the project to put a 75-metric-ton manned platform with nuclear weapons into low Earth orbit. The official decree authorizing N1 production was issued on September 24, 1962, with the first flight to occur in 1965. Now this set forth the first of a series of optimistic schedules for development of the launch vehicle. Completion of the third-stage test was expected by the end of 1964, first and second stages by mid-1965, completion of all engine test stand runs for the first quarter of 1965, and completion of the launch complex by the end of 1964. So, after two years of struggle, Korolev finally had his authorization in hand, but it turned out not to be enough. He had authorization for the N-1, but didn't have the support from the military with a payload for it to launch. Early in 1963, Chief Designer Barman was given responsibility for design and construction of the launch facilities. In March 1963, his design bureau began work on the N-1 launch complex. The groundbreaking ceremony was held a year later And construction began on the N 1 launch complex and assembly buildings then. Korolev continued to search for funding of a payload for the N 1. In September 1963, he was required to submit his plans for space projects in the period 1965 to 1975. Korolev saw a clear chance to again appeal to the leadership for a manned lunar landing program. He dusted off his rejected L-1 circumlunar project, but added four new spacecrafts that would allow reconnaissance, followed by landing on the moon and extended exploration of its surface. First, the new L-1 project had the objective of sending two men on a circumlunar flyby trajectory. The Soyuz configuration was different than we are accustomed to. From fore to aft, the modules were the descent capsule, the living module, the equipment module, the propulsion module, rendezvous electronics module, and the docking unit. This configuration would be important in the latter N1 based projects. The system consisted of a 7K manned spacecraft, the 9K rocket spacecraft, and the 11K tanker. A total of six launches of the Soyuz booster would be required. The 9K rocket stage would be put in orbit first. It would be followed by four 11K tankers, which would top off the tanks of the rocket block. Then, when all was ready, the 7K manned craft would be put into orbit and dock with the 9K stage. The stage would fire and put the manned spacecraft on a translunar trajectory. Next was the L2 project to land a remote-controlled, self-propelled rover on the surface of the moon. It would use the same rocket stage and tanker elements developed for the L-1 manned circumlunar project. The objective of the L-2 would be to conduct scientific research on the lunar surface and to allow selection of a favorable landing site for later manned flights. A television system would send back panoramic television pictures. The rover would be nuclear-powered and equipped with a radio beacon or later manned expeditions to use for precise landings the L2 system consisted of first the L2 crawler this had a maximum speed of 4 kilometers per hour and a range of 2500 kilometers next the 13k rocket system for mid course corrections and lunar braking this would break the L2 to a direct landing on the surface of the Moon with no intermediate lunar orbit. And finally, the 9K translunar injection stage for sending the L2 toward the Moon from the low Earth assembly point. Next, and probably the most interesting, was Korolev's first version of the L3 manned spacecraft designed to make a direct lunar landing using the Earth orbit rendezvous method. It was a 200 metric ton spacecraft requiring three N1 launches and a single Soyuz launch to assemble in low Earth orbit. The first N1 launch would place the 75 metric ton partially fueled translunar injection stage and L3 spacecraft into low Earth orbit. Two further N1 launches would orbit 75 metric ton tankers which would rendezvous and dock with the first payload and top off its propellant tanks. Then the Soyuz would be launched for an automated rear end docking with the entire L3 stack. The L3 spacecraft therefore consisted of five elements. First, the translunar injection stage. Second, the lunar braking stage. Third, the lunar soft landing slash ascent stage, which had a total mass of 21 metric tons landed on the moon. The stage would use variable thrust engines to make a soft landing at 2 to 4 meters per second on the surface. The landing leg structure and the soft landing engines would be left behind on the moon. Fourth, the ascent stage, which would separate from the landing legs and propel the manned capsule back toward the Earth. And fifth, the Soyuz L1 manned spacecraft, which consisted of a 2.5 metric ton equipment module and a 2.5 metric ton reentry module. It could accommodate a crew of two to three. The total L3 mission would take 10 to 17 days. Two and a half to three and a half days would be spent on the translunar and trans Earth legs of the mission. Five to ten days would be spent on the lunar surface. Next came the L 4 manned lunar orbiter research spacecraft that would have taken two to three cosmonauts into lunar orbit for an extended survey and mapping mission. The L-4 complex with a total mass of 75 metric tons would be placed into orbit in a single N-1 launch and would consist of, first, the translunar injection stage, second, the lunar orbit maneuvering stage, which would have a total mass of 11.5 metric tons. This would break the Soyuz manned spacecraft into a lunar orbit and return it on its trans-Earth trajectory. 5 metric tons of propellant would be used for lunar orbit insertion. And third, the L4 stage, which would be a modification of the 7K Soyuz. And finally, the L5 heavy lunar self-propelled craft would be used for extended man reconnaissance on the lunar surface, with a maximum speed of 20 kilometers per hour, It would provide living accommodation for three cosmonauts and 3,500 kilograms of provisions. The crews themselves would be landed on the moon using the L-3 complex. The L-5 rover would have a mass of 5.5 metric tons. Sadly, Korolev did not get the support he needed to carry out all these plans, but he was not about to give up on the N-1.